Dr. Amalia Ghanias-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in our Johannesburg studio today is Professor Marina Stein, who is head of the School for Anatomical Sciences in the Faculty of Health Services at Fitz University. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Prof Stein, as head of the School of Anatomical Sciences at the University of Witwatersrand and also director of the Human Variation and Identification Research Unit, you play a vital role in establishing forensic anthropology as a subdiscipline in South Africa, training many postgraduates and also bringing case analysis into the formal stream of investigation. Can you please tell us more about the school and what are some of the milestones that you want to achieve in this role? All right. So, you know, I'm sitting here wearing two hats. As the head of the school, of course, anatomy um, forms an integral part of training of all the health sciences-related disciplines. You know, and, and in that sense, of course, we have an important role to fulfill and the responsibility to society to, to know that, that we produce uh, capable graduates. However, more in my personal capacity and my personal passion really is the forensic anthropology part, which, uh, y- you know, is really where um, I see myself and, and that is my main passion in the research and the practice of forensic um, anthropology and, and basically deals with analysis of human remains found in forensic contexts. And that is basically what my main role is and you know where my interests lie and so in this sense you know what I would like to achieve or what I've been working for in my career I think is 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 to to make forensic anthropology a formal discipline to put it in the mainstream of forensic analyses and to make sure that we train postgraduates and in the end it's it it's all about I think service to the community in the sense that we want to give a name to to unidentified unidentified people you know who are left somewhere to decompose you know often people who are killed murdered in, in, in South Africa and and of course there's no closure for families there's no follow-up an unnamed person it does just it does not seem right you know, that's, that's something that we need to change. So part of that, it's about establishing their identity, knowing who they were, so loved ones can mourn, and that the person, everyone is an individual, and that we identify who they are, and that they have a, a name on their, their tombstone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody t- deserves to have a name associated mm. with the remains. Everybody's somebody. Yeah, everybody's somebody. Everybody has a family somewhere that needs to know what happened to your relative and after all no case can be investigated if we don't know who the victim was so that's your starting point in any criminal investigation is to to know who the victim was who he was last seen with what is his life history what did he do and so on and Mm. and there's no way that he can know that if you don't know who the person was 
So in that, for almost layman terms, the investigation of human remains in a forensic context, that would be if people are watching television, the likes of uh, a CSI and that type of, of nature of understanding who victims were. You work a lot with police in order to solve crimes. That's basically it. Yeah. So so usually uh, if, if you find a decomposed body in the felt or in a shallow grave, you have no idea who it is. So, so our role is to clean the remains and then to establish, you know, if it represents the remains of one individual more than one. Often, is it human or not? Um, is it complete or not? Is it male or female? What the ancestry is? Um, what the age is? You know, to assess the trauma, pathology, see what we can do to help identify. Yeah, that's basically what we do. And typically, how long does that process take? Sadly, I must tell you, very long. Um, the analysis in itself doesn't take that long, but there's a huge backlog in the system. Um, I think it's it's well known that there's a huge backlog in the forensic system. I assume system, it's so very specialised, so you've, you haven't got a lot of resources, people-wise. Not so many resources, no. Um, I think if there's a case where there's some information of a suspected identity, it gets higher priority, and... We try to push it through the system, especially, you know, if we have an idea of who the family may be or the case and so on. But unfortunately, the standard body found in felt case, long backlog to get through all those old cases, unfortunately. And I read that in your consultation with the South African Police Service that you've been working this for almost 20 years as part of your you know, I consider the academic side your day job and this is another life pursuit and passion and you've completed more than 400 forensic anthropological case reports and have been involved in several high level investigations and repatriations can you share some of your experiences in the role well I think the cases that stay with you are the ones that you go to court for so so often many of these cases never get solved and, and, and you not always have closure but the cases uh, for example that I went to court for and, and, and that, that um, stay with me for example is, is, is the David Similani murder case that's uh, in Malkins in Swaziland this individual murdered 35 women and left them in the forest so that was a case that I was involved with and went to court for you may remember Mark Scott Crosley the case where the body was thrown in the line cage you know so that was also a, an interesting and unusual case um, I, I went to court for one child abuse case which is you know which is also quite uh, memorable for me but but if we speak of incidents specific incidents that happened in, in forensic case work there was you know just one thing that stayed with me always there was a, a, a remains of a small boy brought in and he still had his clothes on. He was badly decomposed, partially skeletonized, but he had his clothes on and we were taking his clothes off. And there was a green balloon in his pocket. And to this day, you know, I, I think about that kid. You know, he was a child and something evil happened to him. You know, and, and, and the kids, the kids are always disturbing. They stay with you. You know, the, the kid, the child should not be found dead in the felt you know there's something inherently wrong in that on the repatriation front I think something that that 
that I still remember as, as a moment of meaning for me is we worked on a repatriation of four soldiers. They were called the Ibo Four from Angola, from the border war. We found only uh, the remains of three individuals under very difficult and dangerous circumstances, um, which is another long story. But but eventually, um, the mother of one of those soldiers uh, was still alive. And I remember when she took the little box with the ashes and kissed it in, in, and put it in the wall of remembrance, the closure for her to bring her son home, to know what happened, to know the remains are here, they're not in a foreign country, they're not sitting somewhere lying, well, we excavated it from a from an aircraft disaster. And that is all, also, you know, one of the moments that I will remember as, as, as being very meaningful for me. Yeah. It's such a, a different career stream and, and field. Um, so everything that you're describing, and these are all issues that really matter in, in a human level on wanting to have closure of, of events of if there has been a death and knowing that your loved one has been found and, and putting an end to, to the mourning process. So, so you know that in Houting, one out of every 10 cases that move through the mortuaries remain unidentified. And that is actually completely shocking. And that that's just no one is looking for, for the person. You know, no one gets looking or they get lost in the system or, you know, in the situation in South Africa, I think many of them may be migrants, illegal migrants maybe, who knows, or people coming to look for jobs in the city and, you know, months later when the money stops coming home, you know, they realize that this person may be missing. So it's just a huge humanitarian issue. Um, you know, one in ten people out of those thousands that, that go through there. Yes. So it's, it's not an insignificant problem. It's a huge problem. No, a massive, mm. massive mm. problem. You've published over 130 articles in scientific journals and book chapters. You've also co-authored the book, The Human Skeleton of Forensic Medicine. And your research focuses on the human skeleton, obviously, both from a past point of view and also from the present perspective. Starting with the past, often I feel from an African context, we always taught history from a European perspective at the expense of our own heritage. You earned your PhD in 1994, studying skeletal remains from Mapungube, a thousand-year-old archaeological site in Limpopo province. Can you tell us about some of your findings from the study? I, I know it's tapping deep into the archives, but... Um, Yes, if you could share some of your learnings on, on this prehistoric population, which is an essential part of our culture. Yeah, Mapungupu is, I mean, it's so close to my heart, really. Um, so Mapungupu is very interesting because in southern Africa, it was the first area where social complexity developed. So whereas before people lived in smaller homesteads at Mapungupu, because of the social status of the site, so people still initially lived in an area called K2, which is also part of the Mapungupe complex, and then social complexity developed so that the leadership developed a royal or sacred or holy leadership, and they moved on top of the famous Mapungupe hill, where there were 23 skeletons buried of the royal family. And um, a number of these were buried with golden objects, and that is where the famous golden rhino and the 
bowl and you know all those famous golden objects come from so they were specifically associated with um the the royals of of a site and they were burial goods grave goods so um i mainly looked at the health status um of these individuals this skeletal collection comprised of about 120 um individuals um Firstly, as far as uh, health status is concerned, we had some interesting findings in that people were not really suffering from chronic diseases or malnutrition. So the life expectancy was not particularly high. We could work out the demography for this process called paleodemography. So you could work out the life expectancy, which is fairly low, but probably deaths resulted from acute infections and acute diseases. And very little found in the line of chronic diseases. So... um, Clearly, their nutrition was adequate. They had a healthy lifestyle. Um, um, none of the well-known chronic diseases that we could find there. Uh, an interesting thing about the Mapungupwe gold graves, unfortunately, the, the bones themselves were pretty poorly preserved, um, is that it was always presumed that these individuals were buried in a sitting position, if you look at how the bones were arranged. But then we excavated remains at Tulamela, which you may have heard from. Tulamela is in the northern part of the Kruger Park. And there one of the burials was a, a secondary burial, meaning that this person died somewhere else and he was of such importance to the community that they brought the bones and reinterred it as some sort of ceremony or symbol, uh, symbolic action. At, at Tulamela with some gold objects and I'm convinced after having looked at all these old photographs and so on that at least one of the individuals at Mapungupue was also a secondary interment y- you know showing some deep meaning mm. of the importance of this individual and bringing the remains from elsewhere and, and doing a, a symbolic um, interment and what's happened with, if I can say, what's what's happened with the sites, the burial sites, the bones? Is everything preserved or has it been relocated? Yeah, so for me personally, it's a bit of sadness because the, the bones were repatriated um, and they were reburied um, at Mapungupwe, um, you know, uh, as part of a ceremony uh, of repatriation. Now, because I'm a scientist, you know, I think it's a great loss. Um, I've recently become involved in some ancient DNA projects where, um, and in one of those papers, we were able to push the origin of modern humans back to about more than uh, 250,000 years. And But but at the time that I worked on Mapungupu, this was not feasible. I mean, the, the, the technology I, uh, wasn't there. It, it just wasn't there. And and how much I would have loved if we were able to do ancient DNA on the Mapungupu remains. And you can't access the the bones now because they're they're reburied. And and you know most of the ancient DNA studies focus on on you know where did people come from, but as part of the spin-off of it is is also information on disease. So for example, when did the first malaria-resistant gene develop? Either the the resistance, you know, so it goes along with climatic changes, tells you something about lifestyle, um, Mm. agricultural activities. So 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 there's so much you can learn from it. Um, So I'm hoping that somewhere, somewhere in the future, you know, um, those bones can be taken out again and sampled. So it must have been a real privilege to have been able to to access them. To work on them, for sure.
Turning to the present, can you tell us about some of your current research and the significant learnings that, that come out of the work? Well, through the years, what we've worked a lot on uh, in, in the forensic realm specifically was to develop standards by which we can identify people. For example, I'm, I'm busy with a project on um, adult age estimation because it's very difficult to determine the age from an adult individual's bones. In a child, it's easier because things happen. Your teeth erupt, your bones grow, the ends of the bones fuse and so on. Adults, it's, it's quite difficult. Um, so that's one of the projects that I'm currently working on. And with a postgraduate student under ACE from uh, still coming from University of Pretoria, for example, we're looking at developing criteria to determine if a person was under the age of 18 or over the age of 18. And that is very population specific. So you cannot use the standards that exist from Europe um, for African populations. And we've already been able to show that there are vast differences in maturation. And, and that's, of course... Uh, legally very important you know if if you committed a crime be under the age of 18 you'd be tried as a sub adult whereas over you'd obviously be be an adult and also for issues of migration if you're under the age of 18 and you're a refugee the the country is, is has to take you whereas if you're older you know that you can be sent back so the legal age of 18 is is is, is quite significant i am so learning about a whole new world <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, so many, so much information. So, so, so with a student, we're looking at, at at teeth and changes in the vertebrae that you can see in X-rays to determine at each state what's the probability of this person being older or under eighteen. So that's so it also finds it's 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 the skeleton, but it finds application in living people as well. Um, but then we have also other project projects of adult age estimation, looking at at bone histology um, and, and, and various statistical models. So that's the one thing that I'm working on. And then lately, just because one can, I've always also moved a bit into craniofacial identification. N not that I'm such an expert, but I do know where the, where the shortcomings exist. Um, and something that may be quite relevant, you know, today is, you know, that Sam Nzima is, passed away yesterday yes. who took the iconic Hector Peterson Makuya, uh, Makubu photo so with my postdoc and it was actually mostly his work you know I just helped him a bit uh, last year there was a, a request from from a radio station to to look at the guy who was carrying Hector Peterson because there's a person in Canada as a refugee who I've heard about that story Can yes you, but please share yes with us. So, so this individual uh, Makubu who carried um, the, the body of, of Hector Peterson and because of that photograph suddenly there was a whole lot of um, attention on him especially from the South African security police so he fled to Africa but there's lots of um, information that he, he, he he may not have been so mentally stable under a lot of stress, believing that, you know, the government was after him and this and that. And eventually, he, an individual entered Canada with, and, and, and he gave his name as Victor Venetau. But there's reason to suspect that it is the same person. So, so in this case, what happened is, is that photographs were provided of, of Makubu in his young days and then photographs of Vinatau, now the individual in Canada, and we tried to match it to, to do a photo comparison to, 
to see if they are actually the same person or not. And we've actually just published the, that paper. And, and the outcome of it is that there's no evidence to suggest that it's not him. We cannot, because there's such a long time lapse and people change and the photographs, the number of photographs that were available were limited and so on. Um, you cannot make a firm conclusion. But, but from what we've seen, there's no evidence to say that it's not him. So it needs to be followed up with DNA. They did do DNA with the brother, but then it turned out that the brother had a different paternal uh, lineage. And so, and, and uh, Vinatau is refusing further DNA assessments. But that, you know, one has to, people think that DNA is just like the magic wand, but it isn't because, you know, you need to have someone a reference point you need to have a reference point to 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 compare it with you know so so that's where that story is currently but that's fantastic 42 years down the line yeah on being able to still uh, try to understand uh, and assess and um, look at what what the answers are mm. and the impact that it has on on people's that's, lives yeah yeah so that's uh, that was a that is a fun story well interesting story to do so so in, in that line, you know, one of the, the projects that we're now doing with a PhD student is to look at the reliability of facial comparisons. So even though it's not the skeleton, but it's the face, you know, it, it relates to the work of a forensic anthropologist. So, so typically, um, if you commit a crime, you're a bank robber and, you know, your photos are recorded on CCTV. There's lots with facial recognition technology yeah, that's but happening that, in the social media yeah, space. Yeah, but, but that's not... Unfortunately, it's very superficial. Yeah, it? and it's not it's not re- reliable for court cases. It's not it's it, it can give you an instant possible recognition, but you can't use it in a forensic context. So 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 we're doing a, a project currently where we doing a blind assessment of of comparisons to see how accurate and reliable they are. Because obviously, these cases go to court. You must have an idea of how good we are at it. You know, because you may send someone to jail for life, and and yeah, it's their a, life's it's on a, the line, and it's a false positive. So we're doing a series of experiments currently to see, you know, the reliability of this technique. So, our service, as I've said, have been dabbling a bit in 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 the mm. facial uh, creating facial identification stuff as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing those those perspectives and and the work that you've done in the past, and also looking towards the future. Today, we're talking to Professor Marina Stein, who is head of the School of Anatomical Sciences at the University of the Witwatersrand and director of the Human Variation and Identification Research Unit. Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro-Soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, and democracy. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band. Also available on DSTV Channel 802. Today, we're talking to Professor Marina Stein, who is the head of the School of Anatomical Sciences at the University of the Witwatersrand and director of the Human Variation and Identification Research Unit. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. In the previous segment of the show, 
Prof Stane shared some of the insights and developments into the work that she does, touching on both the, the role at university in her academic capacity and also in terms of her work as a, a forensic anthropologist, and she shared some of the, the casework that she has done uh, to date. Prof Stane, you're a member of the editorial board of Forensic Science International. You were the director of Forensic Anthropology Research Center at the University of Pretoria. You're currently serving your second term as president of the Anatomical Society of Southern Africa, and you serve on the board of the Forensic Anthropology Society for Europe and the International Association for Craniofacial Identification. Does taking an integral part in so many important associations and organizations come with the territory of your career, or is it something that grew on you along the, the years and now has just become part of your identity? For me, I think it's more um, something that comes with the territory. It's, it's not necessarily something that comes naturally. I think if I had a choice, I would sit in my labs a whole day and, and do research or or work on a skeleton. Um, but it, I guess it becomes necessary. If if you become an older, more senior academic, I think these t things tend to happen to you, and, and, and I guess it's just something that you have to do. Um, but they may not be my first choice always. But as we said offline, part of the, the component in, in academia is, is about publishing. It's uh, What's the mantra? Publish or perish? Absolutely, but the publishing part I love, you know, sitting behind my computer and, and thinking of a paper and thinking up something new and writing it up. That's great. But during a meeting, yeah, that's something that... It's <laughs> just something the one political of side to do. Yeah, you have to do, but it may not be my first choice. Now, Womanity, Women in Unity, is a gender-based program, and as such, we constantly focus on the importance of building female leadership capacity for the future of women, both in South Africa and also on the continent. As a female professor who's achieved a, a lot in your life, and one could almost argue that some of the forensic work is possibly a, a male-dominated career, how do you see female leadership in South Africa, whether that's in the academic space, political environment, or any other arena? Well, interestingly enough, academia uh, is becoming very female-dominated, especially you know, at the lecturer, senior lecturer level. And and in our lab, I, th I think there's one male and, and the rest of are all female. I don't know if it has to do with career prospects, you know, the idea that you have to earn money and that maybe you cannot do that in academia so much. Um, but but academia where I am, in, in the health sciences, um, becoming quite female-dominated. Maybe not up to level of senior management and also in the university even you know up to senior management level not so much not so much females but I think um, getting there um, as far as female leadership in the country is concerned um, yeah mixed feelings about this um, I don't see myself necessarily as, as, as a complete feminist um, but I do think that we have a massive role to play. You know, this morning as as I was coming to work, I, I heard about a pedestrian being killed by 
a blue light brigade of a of a um, mayor of some other town and i was thinking you know that maybe maybe if it was a female she wouldn't have had that ego that was i don't know if it, this is probably not a politically correct thing to say but you know i'm i'm thinking that maybe females don't have the egos that require all these exterior things to boost them but maybe more down to let's get the job done you know so i'm thinking that in many of these forums i think we need more females because i think we need to let go of our egos a bit and get the work done and you're right maybe you just emphasize and focus on symbols of power without actually taking responsibility for the position that you've been given to affect change absolutely need to consider those those roles one of the things that i've i've detected is that there seems to be a really strong feminization in terms of medicine on the profile of of students which you know years before it was a male dominated career path but now we are seeing more and more women take up the the reins in medicine does that also have a, a knock-on effect then in terms of how they move how, well, how women move up and progress from being a student to going into the management sphere and being part of the leadership in the school. Yeah, so when I studied medicine, when I applied, um, 15% um, of the admissions were female. So out of the, our class of 200, they took 30 females. And I think that's in a sense what you see now, why they're not so much into senior leadership, because there simply were not as many. But you're absolutely right that we're seeing a really... Um, significant increase in, in females and not only in numbers admitted but also in number of successes and that's one of the things that they have looked at at WITS and to see and, and seeing that the females um, while studying are much more successful than the males and I think it has to do I guess with an amount of work that you have to sit through you know maybe it's better suited for f female attributes I don't know you know the the ability to maybe just sit and plough through a mountain of work, I don't know. Um, but it is definitely so that it's becoming much more female-dominated. I think it's a good and a bad thing. You know, obviously, I think females have a lot to offer. But I also do think that there's some of the specialties, for example, that females tend to go into more than males, and that it may be creating some imbalances um, in future. You know, so I think it's something that we need to watch make sure that it's accessible um, and, mm -hmm. and available for everyone. So that the gender bias doesn't shift the other way. The other way. Yeah. Now, one of the questions that I'd like to ask you now is about your personal journey. And some of our guests who've reached tremendous achievements in their lifetimes say that factors that have attributed, that they have attributed to their success include their upbringing, perseverance, hard work, what, in your opinion, have been key drivers to your success? Well, maybe a personality issue. I always had to swim a bit upstream. I don't know why it is. But I can remember when I wanted to study medicine, the, the old general practitioner in the town said, but, you know, there's not really a job for a female. And I guess I just had to prove him wrong. Um, but that said, I guess today you would, describe my upbringing as lower middle class. Um, my mother had to leave school before she could finish, which is what's now grade 10, standard 8, because they were poor. 
and it was the Second World War, and her father died, and she had to go and work somewhere. And and to me, that's one of the great pities, I think, in our family life, because I think she was really bright, but really frustrated. Um, in, in those days, she then went to, to work in the municipality, and in those days, if you were married, you couldn't hold a permanent job. So as soon as she got married, she had to leave her job and look after the children. And and uh, I think it frustrated her a lifelong, you know, not and always feeling a no bit fulfillment. Yeah, and um, almost being but being dictated yeah. that you cannot go and and reach your potential. Yeah, my dad uh, grew up dirt poor on a farm in the Southern Free State, and he was a clever kid in the family, and they collected money to send him to university to study to study medicine. His older siblings haven't studied. And, you know, to him happened what I think happens to many students still is failed his first year chemistry, had no money to continue and had to drop out. And so he became a railway policeman and then years later completed a degree at UNISA. So so I don't, I don't think it was a burden on me, but, you know, I always felt glad for my dad's sake that I was able to, you know, to become a doctor, kept my surname, my maiden surname, you know, because I felt he would be pleased. And fulfilling uh, part of his dreams that he, I think, I think he couldn't so. fill. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of that. Never, I never felt that pressure from his side, but I, I do know that it was important for him because he, he couldn't do it. Can you tell us what have been some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up? I've had a very happy and lucky and smooth childhood so I cannot say that there were specific elements but I must say if if some of the things that I remember f- from growing up is is um, and, and it's just one of the injustices that stayed to me that to this day so I remember that one day we drove in our car near the railway station and how there were police chasing some um black uh, men away and and I was told it's because they didn't have passes and that's you know that's just one of those moments of unfairness and and yeah that 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 moment stayed with me um but other than that it was a very secluded a very smooth sailing we were really quite isolated you know being a a white Afrikaans kid in a semi-middle class we were sort of cocooned out from the outside world and it's only once you get to university that I think you see the real world. And I worked for um, 18 months at Casualty soon after I I graduated. And I think that's really for the first time where, you know, where my eyes open and I see what life is really like out there. But I think that's a, a serious eye-opener working in Casualty. It, it is, absolutely, yeah. And who would you say have been some of the strong women in your life? Well, I guess most of us would say our mothers, and I, and, and I guess that's true. And to be honest, other than that, is is no one that I can really point out um, specifically. I remember a person in my academic career that had quite an influence was our table doctor. You know, when you do anatomy dissection, you you being assigned to a table doctor, and 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 she was such a lovely lady who inspired us and carried us through our difficult moments. Doctor Maria was her name. Yeah, but other than that, uh, no one specific that jumps to mind. And given your career, you've you've done 
it's nearly what it's it's like a, a three decade long career. What would you say have been the greatest lessons that you've learned? When I left University of Pretoria, somebody said, "Oh, but how can you go? You know, what about your legacy in this research um, centre that I started there?" And I just have to add that you left the University of Pretoria three years ago after a twenty-eight year long career. Yeah, that was a long, long time. I just thought it was time to mix things up. But in any case, so somebody said, you know, what about your legacy, this research center? And then I said, you know, your legacy, uh, for me, it's not in these structures that you leave behind. I think there's only one legacy for me, and that is in the students that you've trained, the people that you leave behind that are capacitated to do something. You know, and, and, and I think, for me, I feel that I cannot change the whole world. And you and, and, and I don't feel the need to do that, but I think you can make a difference where you are. And in those students that I've trained and, and I take pride in where they are and what they're doing and what they've achieved, you know, I think that's your legacy that you leave behind. So in the humans, in a, in a pay-it-forward process. And lastly, as we close out the conversation today, could you please share a few words of motivation or inspiration that you'd like to pass on to young women listening to us? I think it's it, it's once again this thing that you know you can't necessarily on your own change the world. But I think I think every day one should just try and do the best where you are because I think the fabric of society is in normal people just doing their best, doing the right thing. It's just something that I feel very serious about in South Africa with all the injustices and, and corruption is to do the right thing, and do your best, and just weave this fabric of society um, in everyday actions where you are. Thank you very much. I think that's a, a really fascinating note to leave things on, that it's part of the, the fabric and the network of society, but society only functions if we all do the right thing. That's right. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Morena Stein, who is head of the School of Anatomical Sciences at the University of the Witwatersrand and director of the Human Variation and Identification Research Unit.